There's a kind of person. You know them. I know them. We love them. But we struggle with them. They are what I like to call the movie talkers. You know the type. You sit down to watch a film. The opening scene starts. A character comes onto the screen, and immediately you hear a whisper from next to you, who's that? Right? A suddenly, a mysterious car pulls up. Whose car is that? Right? Another character comes on the screen. Who is she? They begin to have a conversation. Did you go to that place? What place are they talking about? And as one eye begins to twitch and you lean over, your answer has been the same for all of the questions. I don't know. We're watching the same film, right? I don't, I, I don't have supernatural knowledge about the courses of events that are unfolding here. And even if I did, you're kind of ruining the movie. You know what I'm saying? Now, we love them. Now, if you're like, who does that? I've never, you're probably the one. We love you, but you're probably the movie talker. You're probably the notorious one. And if you're unsure, just ask the people around you, and they will be honest with you and let you know that this is who you are. Now, we love our movie talkers, but there's one thing that they're not doing in that moment, and it's this. They're not letting the story speak. They're trying to rush to a conclusion or get to some end or understand something. And there may be some like deep, like therapeutic reasons for their need to have control over the story in that way. That's not what this talk is about. But what this is to say is that they're not letting the story just unfold, right? Because what I tell my kids when we watch a movie and they're the ones movie talking is I'm like, the movie will tell you as time goes on. And then at the end, it'll all make sense. And if you still have questions, we could talk about it at the end. But just give the movie a chance to explain itself, to let the story speak. Now, this frustration we have with movie talkers, we do with the Bible all the time. We bring into it all of these questions and expectations and assumptions, and we don't simply let the story speak. Last week, we began a new series entitled The Story of God, talking about the Bible as a story. And in it, we address some of these assumptions that we bring to the Bible that really hinder us from being able to understand and appreciate it. And so for us to understand The Bible, we must first understand what the Bible is. And our working definition for this series is the Bible is an ancient, as a library of ancient writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story that leads to Jesus. Now, that is a mouthful of a definition, but it encapsulates, we think, what the scriptures are. And if you have any questions about that, I did an entire sermon on it last week, so you could catch up on the podcast. But within every story, there are movements or acts in a story. If you ever go to see a play, there's these pauses of intermission in between acts for you to go to the restroom or do whatever, and for the people behind the scenes to kind of get settled as it's breaking up the story. And in every film, and in every novel, and in every story, it's broken up into movements. The scriptures are the same. And so we are taking the grand narrative of the scriptures and breaking it down to its most simple movements, which are such. First, creation, then the fall, which is not the season, but actually talking about what's happening within humanity in the story. Israel, Jesus, the church, and the new creation. 
This is all of the movements of the story. And over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about each one of these movements in its parts. And today, we begin at the beginning of the story with creation. In the beginning, the first three words of this story. Arguably, there is not a more controversial set of passages than the first few pages of the scriptures and the ones that we're going to look at today, especially in Christian circles. These first few pages are often clouded with debate. Preloaded into the conversations of Genesis 1 and 2 are, and these passages that we're going to be looking at today are all sorts of questions typically to do with science and evolution and various theories about how the universe came to be. But here's what I want you to do. I want to invite you to let the story speak. I want you to take all of these assumptions, expectations, questions, and simply set them aside for the moment. Now, I acknowledge these questions are important, and there's a place and space to have these conversations and these questions and work through some of these theories. But what we want to do is we want to let the story speak. We want to give the scriptures an opportunity to explain what it is on its own terms and not bring our own assumptions to it. So if you would join me, all this debate and arguments and young earth creationists, old earth creationists, all that stuff, set it aside for a brief moment and let's just let the story speak. And hopefully as we go through the story, it will address some of those concerns that you have. Now, if we do not set those assumptions aside, and bring our assumptions to the scriptures, we are in danger of misunderstanding the entire story and missing the point altogether. When we get the foundation of the story wrong, we are bound to misunderstand the rest of the story. So taking Genesis 1 and 2 on their own terms is of the utmost importance. And so when we come to Genesis 1 and 2, which is where we'll be today, the first question we must ask is, what is it? What kind of literature are we dealing with here? Now, when most people read Genesis 1 and 2, they bring into it their modern Western assumptions that what the Bible is doing is giving videotape footage of the unfoldings of the origins of the universe. That if somehow we were able to pull the old VCR tape and plug it in, we would see this exact thing unfolding in the origins of the universe. That God has his home video made and we are watching it all unfold. And this is what we bring to the scriptures. One Bible teacher even calls Genesis 1 and 2 the eyewitness of creation. Assuming behind that, that there is uh, someone there to tell the exact story of how it all unfolded at the beginning of the universe. Others come to this passage as merely poetry, that the author is just trying to convey beauty and creation, but it's making no claims about authority or design in the universe. I think both of these assumptions are wrong and aren't what the story is trying to convey. When we come to Genesis, we have to ask the question, what exactly are we reading? Now, Genesis 1 and 2 are more broadly in the form of narrative but the specific first two chapters are a specific kind of narrative known as ancient cosmology. Now, ancient, meaning that this text was written not last week, not last month, not 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but thousands of years ago. And the context of this being some of the earliest civilizations in the Near East. 
That is where its origins are coming from. So understand this. It is written for you, but it's not written to you. There is a larger context surrounding Genesis 1 and 2, and first and foremost, it is ancient. Secondly, it's a cosmology, which means it's the understanding of how the universe came into being. John Walton, a scholar of Near East ancient cosmology, says this, Genesis 1 is ancient cosmology. That is, it does not attempt to describe cosmology, the coming about of the universe, in modern terms or address modern questions. If we accept Genesis 1 as ancient cosmology, then we need to interpret it as ancient cosmology rather than translate it into modern cosmology. If we try to turn it into modern cosmology, we are making the text say something it never said. And since we view the text as authoritative, it is a dangerous thing to change the meaning of the text into something it was never intended to say. When we try to force our modern conceptions of how the universe came to be into the text, we abuse it. What Genesis is not trying to do is answer the questions of mechanisms in creation, meaning the way that it came to be in its scientific terms. And so much of the debate around Genesis 1 and 2 are trying to force the biblical authors to answer questions they're not interested in answering. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is not making any scientific claims, but it is making authoritative claims around identity and purpose. Genesis 1 and 2 are completely compatible with a wide range of scientific views about the origins of the universe. And this is right on par with other ancient cosmologies. The purpose of ancient cosmologies is, is, is not, to, again, to give mechanism, but to, give, to answer the deeper questions. Tim Mackey says it this way. Ancient cosmologies are narratives that describe the nature of the cosmos. Their primary purpose is not to describe the physical material process by which the universe came into being, but to address basic worldview issues. Who are we? Where are we? And why are we here? Ancient cosmologies um, aren't concerned with mechanism, but are concerned with function. And here's what I mean. John Walton, a Bible scholar and an expert in near-ancient cosmology, developed a helpful way to think about an ancient cosmology versus a modern cosmology. And it's the difference between describing a house and a home. If you were to come, into my, come to my home and say, tell me, the story of, uh, tell me the story of the house, there's two routes we could go. There's the mechanism route. There's the function route. Mechanism would be, well, in 1993, a set of builders decided to do this, right? And here are their floor plans, and this is the type of concrete they used. This is the grade of lumber they used, right? This is the type of drywall here, type of shingles, air conditioning unit, whatever. You're already bored, right? To describe the function of the home, which we described our coming into the house, our decorating of the house, design choices we made, me giving you a tour of the house and showing you room by room how we've set up the home to function in our family. Which story is true? Both. The answer to that is yes, right? Both are telling a true story. They're just telling the story from different angles with different purposes. One is not more true than the other. One is just focused on function, and the other is formed on mechanism. When we come to Genesis 1 and 2, we try to make it tell us mechanism. 
instead of letting it just tell us the story on its own term as function, which is what an ancient cosmology is trying to do. Another thing to point about ancient cause, another important thing to understand about ancient cosmologies is to understand their conception of existence. It is a new modern thought, this concept of nothing. That was not something the ancients really held to or believed in this concept of an absence of a thing. What does it mean when something comes into existence? For us, we think that it becomes material reality, right? Once there was nothing, now there's something. This is not the way the ancients thought about the world. The concept of nothing is relatively new, and it's a modern conception. For the ancients, something coming into existence would be something coming into order. This is the way that the ancients understood things. So as something becomes ordered, it becomes a part of creation. It becomes into existence. Again, Tim Mackey. Ancient Israelites, as well as, near, as ancient Near Eastern peoples, believed something existed when it had ordered as a part of a larger system. Ancient peoples didn't think of existence and nothingness like we do in modern Western context. They thought of reality in terms of order and purpose, disorder, meaninglessness. The difference lies in what is helpful or relevant to a given culture. The third thing is that this, these two pages are not written in a vacuum. They're written as a part of a larger dialogue happening in its time. So when a lot of people grow up with, this, with the scriptures and they jump into college, they're in for a super rude awakening because you take any sort of Western civilization class or ancient literature class, and all of a sudden you're going over all of these origin stories, Egyptian, Sumerian, Hebrew, and you start having a bit of a crisis of faith because you see some of these things are connected. And a college professor will take that information and say, see, right? The Bible makes these claims to authority, and to the, but it's just the same as the Samaritans or the Egyptians. There's not much of a difference, and therefore somebody begins, the world begins to crumble. Because wait, well, how do we know these other religions? And then you just kind of spiral downward from that moment. But if you understand that the Bible was not written in a vacuum, but was written as a part of a larger dialogue with other civilizations at the time, you understand what the Bible is actually trying to do. It is important to note that the written form of Genesis didn't come till much later, most Bible scholars believe. It was an oral story for a majority of its time. And it came about as a conversation and dialogue with other ancient cosmologies. Again, Tim Mackey. The creation narrative we find in Genesis 1 and 2 is in dialogue with the creation accounts of Babylon, Egypt, and Sumeria. It's not as simple as the biblical authors borrowing from these traditions. Rather, they comment on and transform them in a way that sets Yahweh apart from the other gods. So one of the things that the biblical authors are trying to do is they're entering into this larger conversation happening around them, and they're trying to establish Yahweh as the God above all their gods. And the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative, in comparison with all the other ancient cosmologies, is head and shoulders above the rest. It gives humans dignity. It depicts God not as happen chance or random, but as authoritative and powerful. That he's not wrestling against the cosmos, but that he breathes the cosmos out. There's all these beautiful things, and there's too much to go into into other ancient cosmologies, and this is not that kind of a class, right? We're at, we're at church right now. But... What the biblical authors are trying to do is paint the picture of creation as told from a point of view which exalts Yahweh above all other gods. 
And so they borrow some of this different language and use it as an apologetic of source to exalt Yahweh above all other gods. Now, there's so much to chew on here in Genesis 1 and 2. If you've been at Zion for any amount of time, I come to Genesis 1 and 2 any time we're developing any sort of theological framework. Because I think it's from here that it's, it's foundation, that we view the lens of all of the scriptures from this foundation. And so we're constantly coming back here. And so for me to take on the task of teaching Genesis 1 and 2 today, right, is quite an impossible task. Because the whole story is embedded and, and overflows and is folded into this. And so I think the best way for us to understand Genesis 1 and 2 is to simply view it through the lens of movements. We're going to be looking at key movements in the narrative of Genesis to pull away, I think, what the biblical authors want us to pull away from today. And here are the movements for the rest of our time together. God, the heavens and the earth, order, image, presence. Let's just first start with God. In the beginning... God created. This is how the story opens up. We've entitled this series The Story of God because this is, in fact, his story. A lot of us have what we like to call main character, uh, main character energy, which is like where we think the whole story revolves around us, right? That everything starts and ends with myself, the only problem with that is the rest of the universe and the rest of the world. Like, when we put it in cosmic perspective, we're pretty small in this grand scheme of things. And so this story is fundamentally rooted not in me, not in you, but in God. It transcends all of us. It is this story that we are absolutely being invited into and we play a crucial role in, but it's his story and we need to understand that. And here, in the first few pages, we see that this God creates. In the following sequences, the scriptures begin to tell the process of creating. But the thing I want to invite us into first is that he is, in fact, the creator. In the beginning, we are introduced to the beautiful mind behind the world we live in today. Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen say this, Genesis 1 introduces us to God as the infinite, eternal uncreated person who by his creative actions brings the whole of creation into existence. Now, contrary to modern cosmologies, there is a creator behind this beautiful world that we live in. This isn't all just some random chance. Whatever you believe about how the world came into being, it's clear that the biblical authors are absolutely concerned with highlighting God as the one who's initiating and sustaining this world. Whatever the mechanisms are like, the functions is all about God. Now, contrary to ancient cosmologies, God himself is not created. He is eternal in the beginning. Before anything was, God was. He exists before time and matter as we know it. And so here in the beginning pages of Genesis, we are introduced to the artist. The claim that the biblical authors are making, and it's needed to be heard in this cultural moment today, is this. There is a purpose behind creation. It has been said the story we believe shapes the realities we live into. And many of us believe that the story we're living into is merely chance. That all of this just adds up to a lucky roll of the dice. And if we're honest, several million lucky rolls of the dice. 
right, that all of this just came into being. Even a famous atheist scholar said, give me one miracle. Give me one miracle and I can explain the universe away. But even at that, you need a series of insane miracles. Like if you just do any sort of study into how humans are even alive right now, it seems quite fragile that we're even into existence. And yet we persevere and life perseveres and human beings are here and now. It is a beautiful thing. And behind this existence we have is a beautiful mind who set this whole thing into motion. And if there is a creator and an artist, that means there is an intention and design. That you were made for a purpose. That you are not just some happy accident that is just lucky to enjoy the life that you're living, but you were made for a purpose. As we are introduced to this artist, he is given the title, the generic title of God, which in Hebrew is Elohim. But in Genesis 2, this title changes. It goes from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim. It begins to show God's personal name. So as the story opens up, it is God generically, but as we zoom into the story more clearly, we get to reveal his personal name, which is Yahweh, the one who saves. As creation is unfolding, we see the ruach, the breath, the spirit of God hovering over the waters. With every act of creation, God is seeing and speaking and naming and blessing all that he is making. And the authors of Genesis are trying to show us clearly two things. One, God is intimately involved in creation. He did not just set things in motion and pull his hands off the wheels. He is intimately involved in creation. And two, the same God who speaks the world into being wants to reveal himself to humans. He wants to reveal himself in the created order. Again, Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen. The creation itself is described as a marvelous home prepared for humankind. A place in which they may live and thrive and enjoy the intimate presence and companionship of the creator himself. This is God's story, and it begins with him. Movement to the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Chances are, when I say the word the heavens or heaven, you think of a lot of clouds, a gate, which I always laugh at this gate because it's not like a full gate that goes all the way around. It's just like the doors of a gate. And so it's like, who is that keeping out, really? Let's be honest with that, right? And it's like gold, and it's pretty, and everyone's wearing wide, and we're somehow floating, no feet. It's kind of, that's what we think of heaven. And when I say earth, chances are like a NASA photo comes to mind, and you see this blue dot in the vast void of space. This is what comes to mind. Is this what comes to mind for the biblical authors? The answer to those questions is no. That vision of heaven is more about Dante's Inferno and some other writings around that time of Greek mythology and not the scriptures. And that vision of earth is a really new modern concept of how the earth is. These two words do not mean heaven, God's space, and earth, the floating globe in the space. They mean the skies and the ground. To say God created the heavens and the earth to be an ancient Jewish person would be to stand there and say God made everything up there and down here. 
It's everything that your eye can see, God made. The heavens, the skies, literally translated the skies, and the ground, this stuff. And so when we say earth, modern minds think spinning globe. Ancient minds thought this stuff right here, this is earth. The stuff out there, that's earth, right? Walk five miles, earth. That's what the earth is. That's their understanding, right? They weren't lobbing up telescopes into the, the vast void of space 4,000, 5,000 years ago. They just weren't. So this is their conception of how things, were, how things were ordered. Now, the word heavens is plural for a reason, because it's talking about skies, the vast skies that are above them. And so when it says God created the heavens and the earth, it's saying what's up here and what's down here. Now, a word is used to describe the earth as we find it in Genesis 1, and it's this, tohu vavohu in Hebrew, which literally means wild and waste. Your translation may have formless and without inhabitants or formless and void. And so notice as we come to the Genesis narrative, earth's kind of already there. Now this is not to say, oh my gosh, God didn't create everything. Absolutely not. We think that he did, but that's just not where the story is starting. Think again to the imagery of the house. When I tell you the story about the house, how the house came to be, I'm not talking about the dream the architect had when drawing the plans, right? I'm talking about the moment we walked through the door. And this is where the biblical authors are beginning. It's not that that stuff doesn't matter or that God wasn't involved, that it didn't happen, but that's just not the story that they're telling. And so for us to come in here and cram in our views of science and reality into these pages of Scripture, we're just doing huge dis dis injustice to what the biblical author is trying to say. He's beginning with the world as it is. And as the world, as we find it in Genesis 1, is wild and waste. There's, it's chaotic. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But it's chaotic. There's darkness over the surface of the deep waters of this imagery in the ancient mind of just chaos. And the whole earth is covered with these waters. And it's dark. There's no light. There's no purpose. There's no order. It's kind of crazy. And there's nobody there. It's void. It's empty. There's no inhabitants. And so what the scripture author does from this point is they take it from disorder and bring order. They take it from void and bring in inhabitants, people to live in the land. Which brings us to our next movement, which is that of order. We do not have time to go through all seven days of creation and talk about the implication of those things or whatever. We just don't have the time for it. But I do want to do a quick fly overview. The days of creation break down as such. The first day, God creates time, essentially. He uh, separates the light from the dark, creates day and night. God initiates time. Secondly, he separates the waters, which if you do any research into what's happening here, the ancient mind had a three-tiered universe, meaning there was water up there, the world we live in, and then water down below. If, you ever, if you've never been outside of the earth to see the globe, and you're outside and it's raining, what do you think is up there? Water. It's even blue. You know what I mean? Cut them some slack. Like you look up and it's like, yeah, there's probably water up there. It's not until we go up and our understanding of the atmosphere and how all that stuff works, but it's like, yeah, dude, there's for sure water up there, you know? That's their conception of how the earth was formed. And so God creates this universe that they live in. Day three, there's land and plants. Day four, God inhabits the skies with the sun, moon, and stars. They are symbols uh, for his power and his radiance and his goodness. And there's all sorts of things that go in there that we do not have time for right now. 
Then day five, he creates the birds, of the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And day six, he creates land creatures. And the climax of day six is he creates human beings. So here, there's so much to talk to you about, talk about on the seven days of creation. But there's three things I want to point out. One, there's a symmetry between days one and three and four and six. Days uh, on one side of the things, perfect. It is all about ordering. And on the other side of things, it's all about inhabiting. So think about how the Genesis world was set up. It is formless and void. God brings form and he fills it. This is the, what the biblical authors are trying to convey here. Secondly, uh, or sorry, yeah, secondly, it's about ordering, it's about inhabiting. Thirdly, they complement each other. There's poetic rhythm happening here. They coincide with one another. I've shown that in the color coordinating, right? But there is, you know, some symmetry happening here, some ebb and some flow, some give and some take. There is some poetry happening here. This is not by accident. This is absolutely on purpose. Now, what we tend to do is we say, well, was it seven literal 24-hour periods? And it's like, you're asking the wrong question, man. It would be like this. We go out for dinner. We're sitting down at the table. And tell me how you and, you and Celeste met. Oh, man. Let me tell you this story. So, you know, the, I meet her here. What is she wearing? I think a black dress. And anyways, what day is it? Uh, it might have been a Thursday. You know, and I'm trying to get to the story, but you keep bombarding with all of these questions that don't have anything to do with the story. It doesn't matter what day it was. It doesn't matter the color of dress she wore. It doesn't matter the food we even ate. What matters about the story is that me and her met. And even if you were to get my story and take videotape footage and say, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, it wasn't a black dress, it was a dark blue dress. And you didn't have tacos, you had enchiladas. You missed the point of the story. You see what I'm saying? And we do this all the time with the biblical narrative. Again, it's not that those questions don't matter, they do. That's just not what the biblical authors are trying to address. And so many followers of Jesus get sucked into that vortex of having to defend a seven literal day creation or make evolution and creation thing all map together when they're not competing stories. And that's not what we have to do. We must only let the story speak. Now, there's all kinds of conversations to be had about physics and how the world came together, and I'm not qualified for any of that. But that's not what the Bible is trying to do here. And it's important that we take the Bible in its own, in its own story. Now, the next thing I want to point, about, point out in this ordering is at the end of every day, God says that it is good. As God is bringing about order and beauty into creation, he is declaring over God's creation that it is good. Most followers of Jesus have an understanding that somehow, some way, the world we live in is bad, corrupt, and the whole goal of this whole thing is just to beam me up, Scotty, get me out of this place, right, because it's going to hell in a handbasket kind of a thing. Okay, but that's not what the biblical authors are trying to say here. The creation is good. Broken, we'll get to that next week, but nonetheless, good. And the whole ending of the story is not us living in disembodied states in that vision of heaven forever playing harps with other angel babies. It is here on earth with God renewed. That's the biblical narrative. And so as God is bringing and breathing creation into existence, he declares it is good. And on the sixth day, God adds a word. 
after creating humanity. You want to know what he says? It's very good. I just have a sense right now that there's someone in the room who's been really wrestling through some insecurity. And the way that you've been speaking about yourself is destructive and harmful. And if you said it out loud, you'd be embarrassed that you were so harsh on yourself. And this has nothing to do with the sermon, but this is to say that when God sees you made in his image, he declares very good. That the very things that you hate about yourself, the very things you pick yourself apart at, the very things you think everybody is focusing on are God's fingerprints over your life and declares over your life very good and to embrace the way that he has made you. The next thing is all of creation culminates in day seven. Like all of it leads up to day seven. And guess what God does on day seven? He rests. Day seven, creation is made. God just delights and rests in all that he has made. And this is where we get the practice of Sabbath, which this is a reminder, right, to come back to the practice of Sabbath. (laughs) But this is why we do it. Within the rhythm of creation, God rests and delights and enjoys in the world that he has made. And he comes to rest and dwell with his creation. Verse 27 of chapter 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to him, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves in the ground. The next movement is that of image. Image in Hebrew is the word salem. And uh, it literally means statue or figure. And so if you were to go worship in an ancient temple, they would build a statue of their god, whether it's Marduk or Baal or whoever it is, there would be a statue of their god. Think about like the Greek gods. There's this big statue of Zeus or whomever. And you walk into the Jewish temple, there is no image because God's image is already on him. We are his Salem. We are his image. We are his image to the world. The creation is his temple, and we are his image. And we are given a task as his image, and the first thing is to rule. Human beings are God's representatives to the world, and we've been asked to rule. The idea being here to bring forth the potential of the earth. Tim Keller says it this way, this idea of ruling is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Briefly, many of us have this understanding of work as it's the worst, and you might have a pretty crummy job, and I'm super sorry about that, but you were made for work, and I know that doesn't make you super excited going to work tomorrow, but... You were made to bring forth goodness out of God's creation. Every single person here has talents and abilities and wisdom and things. And your ruling, your cultivating the good might be organizing into spreadsheets. It might be being an accountant or financial person. It may be being a barista or a, a cook. Whatever it may be, you are bringing forth goodness into God's world. And so as you gear up for your day tomorrow, come at it with a new lens. I'm here to bring about the good. 
Now, if you can't say about your job that you're bringing forth goodness, should you be doing that job? I ain't here to answer that question. I'm here just to ask it. Moving forward. Now, the next thing is for us to multiply. Now, at a surface level, this is a pretty easy understanding. There's a guy. There's a girl. They're married. Multiply. I don't have to do the math for you there. You understand what he's getting at. But that's not only what he means. It's a part of it and an important part, but it's not only what he means. The idea of being to multiply doesn't just mean to have offspring. It means to create a society that is flourishing and bringing forth goodness and potential in life. Now, I've done a lot of work on Imago Dei, ruling, stuff like that. There's tons of stuff on the podcast. We don't have time today. Moving on to the last one, which is presence. In Genesis 2, it says this, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. One of the first things that we see is Eden as a temple. Gordon Winham, a Bible scholar, says, the Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary that is a place where God dwells or where man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found in later sanctuaries, particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the Garden of Eden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. The biblical authors open up the story with the Garden of Eden as God's temple. And from there and the rest of the story on, which we'll trace as we go through Israel's story and Jesus and the church, is that the temple is just a place where God meets with his people. And Eden was God's temple where we met with him. And all the imagery that we see in the tabernacle and the temple, all the design, the way that they architect the whole place, is based off of Eden for a reason. More on that in weeks to come. Secondarily, we're to see human beings as priests. Now, I know that priest has like a word. It's like, do we got to get the collar and wear the black thing? I know there's imagery in your mind. But a priest just simply means one who is with God and with other people. That's their job. And so the job of humanity in this is to be God's stewards to creation. And there's two things that they're told to do here in Genesis 2.15, to work and to take care of. These are both priestly duties. The idea of to work or to serve or to worship, it's a common verb. It's the word avad. And it's, uh, it's meaning to cultivate the soil, but also used in a religious sense about serving God and priestly tasks, especially regarding the tabernacle duties for the Levites. The other word is to take care, um, which is the word shamar, which is used as priestly service of worship, um, as well as in legal texts of observing religious commands and duties. The word is also used for the Levitical responsibility of guarding the tabernacle from intruders which will be important next week. But they're to take care and to work the guard in this temple that God has put them in. We've gone over the major movements of the story, and we'll further unpack these in weeks and months and years to come. But I want to land this plane because there's so much to talk about here. I want to first address some of the red flags in the room. Some of you may come up with a different vision of Genesis 1 and 2. And you might be like, I have all of these questions. I get it. I hear you. And they're important. And we can talk about those questions. But one of the things that you do when you come to the text with all that extra baggage and you try to make the biblical authors address this baggage is you put yourself into a series of corners. So between Genesis 1 and 2, if you just do a full reading through, 
there's some discrepancies. And people and scholars have pointed this out for a variety of times. Like, for example, plants are made before humans in Genesis 1. Plants come after humans in Genesis 2. So if this is a literal telling of the story, you got some problems, right? A little bit. And that's just one. There's a lot. And this may be like causing some anxiety in you. So the whole thing's not, not at all. It is absolutely true. You're missing the point of the story. Like in telling the story about me and Celeste met, you're worrying about dress and shoes and tacos when I'm talking about two people meeting together and falling in love. You know what I'm saying? And so the biblical authors aren't trying to make Genesis 1 and 2 line up perfectly in perfect order. They're telling two, two versions of the same story. Genesis 1 is a cosmic view of the earth coming into being. And Genesis 2 is about humanity and our role in this whole thing. And so this does not make little of the scriptures. This, does not, this is not a slippery slope to liberalism. If you don't take this seriously, this is just taking the Bible as it comes to us. And I would argue this. The only way to take the Bible seriously is to take it as the biblical authors intended us to. And so I realized that I just pushed some of you off the deep end. I'm sorry, I hope you brought floaties to swim. But um, it's a journey that you'll be on for, and I'm happy to have further conversation about this. But I want to get to the heart. Can I get to the heart of this thing right now? There's a scene from Ferris Bueller. Not many sermons talk about creation of Ferris Bueller, but I'm doing it. It's one of my favorite movies ever. And one of the things I love about stories and movies in general is the more you watch them, the more you realize things happening. And there's a scene in Ferris Bueller. I think it's going to be on the screen for you. Perfect. It's the art museum scene. One of my favorite sequences in the film. They're going to the Chicago Institute of Art, Ferris, his girlfriend, and Cameron. And they're looking at all of these pieces of art, and Cameron is having a transcendent moment. And at the time, it's a great score. It's beautiful art. You're just like falling in love with the place, but something deep is happening within Cameron that shifts the trajectory of his story for the whole film. Ferris Bueller's been out since the 80s, so dude, this is a spoiler alert. I'm sorry, you've had plenty of time to watch the film. But the crescendo of the, of the scene in the art museum, he's standing before this painting, and as he's standing there, it's this really strange shot. You see Cameron's face, like a zoom in on Cameron's face, and then him looking at the picture, and then Cameron's face, and then the picture. And as it keeps going back and forth, you keep zooming in on the photo, on the picture more and more and more until suddenly you're so zoomed in on the photo, you could see like the grains of the canvas, but the picture becomes unclear. Then the movie just moves on. But here's what you have to realize is happening here, and this isn't like some supernatural knowledge. I heard John Hughes, the director, talk about this. What's happening within Cameron at that time is um, all throughout the art museum stuff, he's resonating with parental images because the whole story arc for Cameron in the movie is that his parents aren't there for him. And suddenly he comes to this painting, and as he's looking at this little girl in this painting, he realizes that her face doesn't have any details. And as he stares longer, he sees less and less. And this is Cameron's great fear about himself, that the more you look at him, the less there is to see. And this creates the change in Cameron, where he finally stands up to his parents, and he kind of takes ownership of his own life, and it changes from this moment. Now, what the heck does this have to do with the Genesis narrative? What happened to Cameron was he let the story speak. He let the artwork confront him. 
He didn't come in with questions about what kind of canvas is this, and do they use this kind of you know paint or whatever? And I think that's a six millimeter brush. It's like what? He just stood before the painting and let the painting speak. He was caught up in the painting, if you will. The point of the scriptures and the point of the Genesis narrative is not to control it. It's not to get your arms around it. It's to let it embrace you. And it's not to make it fit into your understanding of how things are, but to let it wash over you. It's to let the story speak. It's to let the biblical authors tell the story that they're telling. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this quote. He says, the place where the Bible begins is where our own most impassioned waves of thinking break and are thrown back upon themselves and lose their strength in the spray and the foam. The waves of the text just coming over us and telling us again and again the story of us and God. You have two options today. You have more, but basically two. One, to try and master the text. Come to it with your questions and presuppositions and all these different things and all these questions and what about this and how about this and thermodynamics, whatever else, all these other questions you may have. And that's fine. But a better journey and the more important one is to let the story master you. Let the story speak to you. For you just to stand before it for a moment let those questions subside and let the story wash over you. And what might happen because of that? What might change in you because of that? What might anxieties and worries and hurried thoughts that you have about this drift out towards sea and you realize and you stand in the greater movements of the story that there is design behind this. There's a beautiful mind behind all of this, and he's come to meet with you. I'm not here to answer the questions. I'm just here to ask them. Would you join me in standing? We're going to enter into a time of response now, and to lead us into a time of response, I'm going to pray, and Jake will lead us the rest of the way in. But Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, as you were moving over the darkness of the deep, your spirit now resides over your people. And I pray, Lord, that your word would just be going forth to accomplish the work for which it was sent out. Lord, that we would stand before the story and let the story speak to us. Lord, that we would allow the questions we carry, Lord, to be subsided by the wonder and power of the waves of the story, Lord Jesus, that you would just captivate us again with you. Oh, Lord Jesus, bring us to a place of responding to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.